trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy O'Leary. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Hello, hello. I'm about to open mine. Uh-huh. This is one of my favourites. I am drinking a tropical IPA. I can see what I believe is a Welsh brand on there as well. It is. Tiny Rebel Club Tropica. It's really tasty. Mm -hmm. It's like a marriage of lilt and beer. And what has that made you think about? Uh, yeah, with that, I'm thinking about tiki bars. Ah, uh, Club Tropicana drinks are free. Um, that was that was Club Tropicana. <laughs> I am drinking <laughs> what um, promises to be uh, an Hawaiian daiquiri. Ooh. I say promises to be because this might be the worst drink I've had on this podcast so far. Oh. I haven't tried it yet. I haven't tried it, but I'm about to, but it came out of a can. Ah. <laughs> so, because the thing is, I don't really have rum in the house because I'm not a big rum drinker. But knowing that we were going to do tiki bars, I thought, well, what am I going to do? I don't want to buy a bottle of rum just for the sake of having some of it for this. So I went for the... Uh, Hawaiian daiquiri in a can option mm. and um how is it well we'll see how it goes yep it's good <laughs> so uh tiki bars <laughs> <laughs> I might might surreptitiously switch to a beer halfway through this podcast we'll see uh, tiki bars now I think let's just put it out there right away this is there's gonna be some stuff in here which is all about being a 21st century woke person <laughs> and acknowledging there is a certain amount of cultural appropriation to this. However, what I don't want to do is turn it into a big whinge fest because there's lots of good stuff to get into about the drinks themselves. But we are, we are a social and cultural history podcast rather than a this drink tastes nice. So we have to do a little bit of what was the real history behind it. Does that sound okay? I, I, I'll accept it. <laughs> <laughs> you won't you won't um tell me off for being too woke well this is the first time i've done the podcast where i am a little bit i'm not drunk i'm tipsy <laughs> i'm glad that i've picked a, you know the cultural appropriation podcast for being a bit merry <laughs> yeah is this your way of already apologizing for something racist oh, to be fair i just use the welsh card normally oh sorry i'm welsh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're such a minority in ourselves we can't be racist exactly. that's that's the welsh take on it isn't it <laughs> all right let's go to the beginnings of the tiki bar then and what we have to do is meet this guy called don the beachcomber he sounds great don the beachcomber not his real name to begin with his real name was ernest raymond beaumont gantz but he did actually later legally change his name to don beach and he was a Texan guy who decided to go travelling around the world in his youth 
and she particularly fell in love with South Pacific, with uh, that whole region with Polynesia. And when he returns, there's a lot to get through today, so his, his life is a whistle-stop tour. When he returned, he went and lived in LA, and he was a bit of a wheeler-dealer kind of guy. He had a lot of jobs on the go, and uh, one of them was to make sets for Hollywood. He was a set builder in the film industry. And he, let's say he used leftover sets. I've read some people say he did actually buy uh, the sets after they've been used. And some people, like when he built the sets, he probably just nabbed it. (laughs) But he used those to create a bar that he filled with, as he called it, flotsam and jetsam to try and evoke this uh, Pacific Island feel, this Polynesian feel to it. Uh, While we're on it, actually, do you know what flotsam and jetsam means, where it comes from, what the difference is? I have no idea. Not even the first clue. It's not about... It's not about drinks, but I know we love pirates and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, flotsam comes from floating, jetsam comes from jettison. Okay. So, flotsam is the stuff that was floating on the sea after a ship had been sunk. Jetsam is the stuff that was purposely thrown overboard, perhaps to um, avoid being sunk. That's some good trivia. Well, Thank you. Know, you. Now you know. I like it. Some, some good triv. So he creates this bar and he opens it merely days, days after Prohibition has ended in 1933. So what that would suggest is that he already had a supply of alcohol at hand because <laughs> it takes most bars a little while to catch up rather than just a few days um the drinks that he had were all rum based and that's because uh no other legal distillers had been set up in the us really but cuba was producing rum and they could send it over cheaply um, and readily from there and so he was probably already getting in from Cuba. So as a result of which, all these cocktails are rum-based. He calls them rum rhapsodies. I love rum. I absolutely love rum. This is like my dream podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. Well, so here's the thing. We've, we've covered some aspects of this before. I mentioned Don the Beachcomber in the Halloween episode as the creator of the zombie cocktail. But we've also had a bit of a chat about um, Caribbean rum in our episode on Mount Gay. Mm-hmm. And this is it. So the, Although he created this decor, which was meant to be Polynesian, all the drinks are taking their inspiration from the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. They're rum punches. They've got spices, sweeteners and fruit juices. Um, so at that time as well, when we're going into the 30s, it's a real change from the cocktails that the US has been used to. I was going to say prior to Prohibition, but we all know that, you know, the gin martinis, as we said, I think in our second episode, maybe, was still going on during Prohibition. Um, so you had all these, you know, simple but hard alcohol cocktails before. Now all of a sudden they've gone sweet, they've got mixes, they've got juices. At his place, as I said, there's, there's Caribbean punches, there's Polynesian decor, the food was mostly Cantonese, <laughs> and the bartenders were all Filipino, dressed in Hawaiian shirts. Now, that kind of tells you everything you need to know about the legacy and criticism of something like Tiki, is wrapped up in how this was all put together. It was 
various inspirations and necessities all thrown into one kind of othering bar that was basically just not like the US. The real star of it, though, I would say, rather than the decor, was certainly the cocktails. And so much so that Don Beach kept the recipes a secret. He wrote them in code, so some drinks he would only make himself, and he would also uh, pre-mix things and put them in generic bottles and label them only with numbers or with... um, uh, Uh, sort of xyz secret ingredients add this to lime juice it makes a certain drink so a lot of his recipes were very complex and were lost for quite a long time but it didn't stop other people from trying to create their own and perhaps steal from it a little bit shall we say most famous was victor bergeron who is the founder of trader vic who's the other kind of really well-known big tiki franchise mm-hmm. next to Don the Beachcomber. So he was um, inspired, shall we say, <laughs> by his visits and uh, opened his own tiki restaurant in... Uh, I believe he sort of started actually in a hotel in Seattle and then opened his own place in Northern California in 1937. It wasn't initially called Trader Vic's, but that was the persona he took on as sort of the host of these restaurants and eventually it just became named after his persona instead. He had a very commercial mind to this. He included a gift shop in his uh, in his restaurant and lots of nautical accents and shipwreck decor, you know, very much like we've seen from Don the Beachcomber. Um, he even did a bit of a shtick with the Trader Vic thing of saying that if guests brought in decorative items they could exchange it for free food and drink nice um, My kind of bar. yeah exactly can you imagine <laughs> the tat we turn up with <laughs> any bizarre sex toys we find on wish uh, brought in and offered <laughs> so um so bergeron adopted this new persona he was trying to imitate Beach's theatrics, which were really over the top. And of course, Beach had all the uh, experience of working in Hollywood uh, to, to bring to his bar as well. But uh, Bergeron's stick was that he said that he had a wooden leg that was the result of being attacked by a shark. He actually did have a wooden leg, so it worked very well, but he lost it to tuberculosis, not a shark. <laughs> 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 I mean, you would say the shark story, wouldn't you? you How'd you lose your egg? Absolutely oh, would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, take something and turn it into a positive. <laughs> they had a lot of disagreements over their rights and origins of their drinks. Most famously, the Mai Tai. So uh, Bergeron from Trader Vic's actually won the Mai Tai battle. Uh, he distributed it to for people to drink at home. They created the Mai Tai mix. That's sort of the beginning of you can buy these pre-made things and then mix them at home, much like I'm having now. Mm-hmm. And also mm-hmm. Tradevic, yeah, I know. Also Tradevic, <laughs> um, he published recipes. So he published a couple of books. He was a lot less secretive about what went into his drinks, which arguably led to the longer lasting success of the brand. Um, so he claimed to have invented the Mai Tai in 1944. This is this is Vic. This is Victor. 
and Don Beach said, well actually I created it first in 1933, but it wasn't that he created Mai Tai as a name, he had a cocktail called the QB Cooler, and he said the QB Cooler is basically the Mai Tai, but when you look at what we now know are the recipes. They are, I mean, Don's is much more complex than Vic's. And I say Vic's was kind of simpler and more commercial. Don had lots of sort of secret ingredients going on. Some people do think it, it, they taste the same. Some people think they taste differently. I guess it just works differently on different palettes. Um, the name for Mai Tai while we're on it is taken from a Tahitian word. There are a lot of countries in today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is it is the word Mai Tai, which, which means good or excellence, but it's sort of one word rather than the two words, how it's now spelt, how you'd recognise it. Um, most of the current recipes for Mai Tais, based on Trader Vic's 1944 recipe, will include rum and lime juice, orgeat um, syrup, I don't know if I've mentioned that before. Orja is a syrup made of, uh, originally from barley, but mostly now from almonds, um, prepared with sugar and then an extract of orange flowers. Uh, and also traditionally some or orange curacao. So that's the Mai Tai. It became sort of this cornerstone of, of a battle between the two. While we're on names, as I said, Mai Tai is a Tahitian name. Tiki mm -hmm. is a Maori word. Mm -hmm. Tiki was actually the first man in Maori mythology and is mostly known in the tiki bars as an extension of um, carved images or gods or ancestors. So it goes from being one man's name to sort of all our ancestors and gods. Mm -hmm. But it's not, that's not how it's most often used in Maori. Uh, it was applied quite early on to tiki punch and tiki brooms and tiki torches and so on, uh, but not initially with tiki bars. That comes a bit later in the in the nineteen fifties. Uh, there's a there's a, another drinks connection with tiki beyond the tiki bars, which is uh, in the mythology. Once tiki was created, Tane, who's like the big creator god touched noses with him and breathed life into Tiki and then chanted the words Kia Ora mm. which in the years since has lost some of its origins people now just think it's a greeting it means hello or greetings but in the perfect translation of Kia Ora in, in Maori it means come alive so it was the words that first first breathed life into man uh, in Maori nice. tradition but obviously Kia Ora for people who don't know is also a sort of Tropical fruit juice soft drink thing. <laughs> it's delish. I love Kiora. <laughs> it's kind of what my daiquiri tastes like, I think. <laughs> uh, the I tried to dig into where the influence for the Maori origin stories came from. Because particularly when you read about Tiki, it's very Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. I suspect that that is... It, it came partly from Christianity and partly from some older traditions. But you've got to remember, like, New Zealand and, and those islands aren't very old. They're only 2,000 years old, really, in terms of human population. So, mm. uh, yeah, it's it's difficult. I, I, I searched for, has it come from Adam and Eve, but I just couldn't find an answer. But it, it's things like um, Tiki uh, wanted a wife. It, they took a rib. They created one. 
uh, she gets seduced by an eel rather than a snake, uh, which is the fir- the cause of the first sin. And it's all just very uh, matching. So interesting, anyway. Right, let's go on to when it really started to become popular, as I say, when the tiki bars uh, became in use. So just for a bit of history of the US and the Pacific, the US had already claimed Hawaii in the 1890s, uh, but, but most of the control of the other Pacific islands comes throughout World War II because the servicemen are sent out there to fight. They got a lot of exposure to different Pacific islands. And I think as you might explore as well, we see it in a lot of films throughout the 20s, mm-hmm. 30s and onwards. Yep. So it was really sort of during and after World War II that this idea of a exotic, sexually liberated Polynesia represented by the US's version of Tiki really took off. And the trend of these themed restaurants kind of flourished. So they were trying to create this idyllic island living, palm trees, escapism, tribal masks, topless native women in grass skirts, you know, all these sorts of American fantasy versions of it. There was also a very famous, how would you call it? It's not really an exploration. Activity in 1947 (laughs) called Contiki, which... We may have heard of it, got turned into documentary in films, and it, there are bars called Contiki. So let me tell you what it is. It was a journey by raft across the Pacific Ocean from South America to the Polynesian Islands, and it was led by a Norwegian explorer and writer called Thor Heyerdahl. And Heyerdahl's belief was that people from South America could have reached Polynesia uh, before Columbus. So, you know, in the last episode, we're talking about Mesoamerica and what happened just before the Spanish came over. This is, this is his idea that they would have gone over to Polynesia. So his aim is to map this Contiki expedition and to show that using only the materials and technologies available to those people at the time, there were no technical reasons to prevent them from having gone over. And the expedition did have some modern equipment, like it had, <laughs> you know, he says no modern equipment, they had radios and watches and charts and sextants and metal knives. Uh, but he said, oh, they're incidental to the purpose of proving that a raft can make that journey. His hypothesis, this is probably, you know, where we start to get really dodgy territory in terms of racism. And I need a sip <laughs> just to get me through it. <laughs> um, okay, you ready? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm ready. So his hypothesis um, was that South American origin of Polynesian people, um, the the drift voyaging hypothesis, um, was that the original inhabitants of Easter Island, and therefore the Mm -hmm. rest of Polynesia, were the Tiki people. They were a race of white bearded men who supposedly originally sailed from Peru and he said that they were sun-worshipping, fair-skinned people with blue eyes, feral red hair, tall statures and beards. And he said that those people were originally from the Middle East and had crossed the Atlantic earlier to found the Mesoamerican civilizations. And that yeah. by 500 CE, a branch of them was supposedly forced out, uh, out, of, uh, out of that region where they became the ruling class of the Inca Empire. You know, the Incas okay. kind of largely yeah, yeah. Peru. Mm-hmm. And that they set out to voyage across the Pacific Ocean under the leadership of Contiki Viracocho, 
who was an Incan creator deity. So that was his idea. Um, <laughs> you, uh, you may be unsurprised to know that modern scientists completely reject that idea. We have a wealth of evidence, archaeological, linguistic, cultural, genetic, to let us know that Polynesian people migrated over from Southeast Asia um, and came mm-hmm. that way about 2,000 years ago. But it was, you can tell from the way he felt like he had to describe how they looked that this was based on a sort of weird Scandinavian Aryan <laughs> idea of what people should and shouldn't be able to do in terms of civilization. Yeah, so, those um, bloody ginger tiki people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that's where Contiki, when you, hit, when you see those bars that still exist that are called Contiki, that's the voyage it's based on. I mean, fascinating right. voyage. Like they did, they did make it to Polynesian Island in just over 100 days, but mm. it doesn't take away from the reason why he was doing it, really. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you'll, you'll explore a bit more kind of the films that came out around then and how it was really popular in the 50s and 60s following the Second World War, but it went into decline in the 70s um, quite quite swiftly, really. The contributing causes to that, I think, one thing is that, you know, the 60s student revolutions made people much more aware of things like racism and cultural appropriation. There were also just really practical things like an increase in lower quality ingredients you know, given that it was all meant to be inspired by fresh spices and juices and, you know, rum and stuff, you were just getting lots of premixes and bottled syrups and artificial mm-hmm. flavours. And it had moved away somewhat from the flotsam and jetsam into becoming like really kitsch plastic decor and tiki mugs. So yeah. there was a lot to, you know, make it go out of fashion. It's interesting, you see, it goes away completely, almost completely in the 80s, and then in the 90s, you start to see it, all the paraphernalia popping up on in on sale in, like, second-hand shops because all of a sudden it was kitsch again. You know, the <laughs> 90s was nothing if not obsessed with postmodern irony. You know, everything that was bad was hilarious because we were in this time where we thought, no one's ever going to be that racist and stupid again. You know, they were very, <laughs> oh, they were very naive people. And so you get such a big emergence of kitsch, including Polynesian pop, as they termed yeah. it in the 90s, because their idea is that we're living in a globalised world. Like we're all, it doesn't mean what it used to mean. Mm-hmm. I think at the time, I, I totally felt that way about a lot of things as well. But now I see yeah. how naive that was for sure. Yeah, absolutely. End of the 90s, we get into this revival Um, Partly it's to do with a sense of kitsch, uh, but a lot of it is to do with a guy called Jeff Beachbum Berry. There's a lot of Beachbum names going on around this world. (laughs) And he tried some of the classic tiki cocktails and loved them and became obsessed with trying to rediscover the original recipes. Like I said, so many of them were secret, especially from Don the Beachcomber. So he went around interviewing ex-bartenders and doing, you know, looking up old recipe books and stuff and really revived an interest in what they originally would have tasted like. So he, he's written loads of books, uh, Intoxica, Taboo Table, Sipping Safari, Beach Bumberry Remixed and Potions of the Caribbean. Uh, 
And he um, he thinks he found, for example, the original recipe of the really potent zombie, which is the one I it is the one I read out in the Halloween episode. And we were like, yeah. have you ever heard of a cocktail this strong? And that's why a lot of them <laughs> got really watered down. But the original ones were, were very, very strong. Mm-hmm. So he did lots of research into this, published lots of books. He opened his own bar in New Orleans called Latitude 29. And even though he was all for rediscovery and publishing, he has held on to a recipe that he's kept secret just so that he can distinguish his bar from the others. It's a nine ingredient syrup that's uh, used to flavor his punch. So secrecy has been this kind of big constant in the tiki cocktail world and it continues to this day for many people. I'll just end with the um, kind of cultural appropriation segment uh, (laughs) by saying (laughs) that there are a lot of interesting organisations now that are Pacific based or by Pacific heritage people who are looking to explore this a bit more. Uh, the Pacifica Project is one of them. It's a hospitality mm-hmm. collective for oceanic heritage and the drinks industry. And there are there are a lot of conversations they're having around this. A lot of them say that tiki can lead to more understanding of the culture and the challenges for Pacific Islanders, but that it might be better to call it tropical to diminish some of that cultural appropriation. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, there, there are examples on both sides. I think, for one thing the Christian missionaries that had gone over to Hawaii when the US took it had wiped out, pretty much wiped out any of their history and their gods and their culture before Don Beach, you know, moved there and turned a local um their local crafts into this big tourist market. So, you know, perhaps not good to sell your culture to tourists. On the other hand, it may also have completely disappeared for a long much longer period of time if they hadn't have taken somewhat of an interest. Other people were saying, nah, tiki is just flat-out racism and it's a diminishment of our culture. You shouldn't do mm-hmm. it at all. So there are, there are different ideas on different sides, but there are certainly some organisations and some people who are looking to see how they can um, reclaim it a bit, make it a bit more authentic. The problem with that, I would say, is it, it's great for Pacific Islanders to say they want to reclaim tiki, but let's not forget that a lot of that is Caribbean. So you've also got Caribbean people saying they want to reclaim tiki. And it, it, all it points out really is how stupid tiki is as a term, because it meant exotic, it meant anything. So, uh, yeah, anyway, that's, that's where we're up to in terms of uh, go woke or go home. <laughs> Tell me about your film explorations. I think you, you've... Uh, to tell me about so yeah i just looked into how the kind of tiki movement influenced popular culture uh, and mine was more around kind of the 50s and 60s which you say was like the kind of well not the, really the revival but it was when it, when it started to really come into society a lot more um and it wasn't just like the bars and the drinks it was decor fashion film music television you were seeing it everywhere um and it was influencing artists like howard hughes elvis frank sinatra you notice tiki little aspects of it with them um tv shows things like up to the modern day as well you've got hawaii five oh the brady bunch gilligan's island even the muppet show has a 
Hawaiian war chant. Um, there's just essences of tiki here, there and everywhere. But I looked into film the most. Because um, a lot of these like film sets were based in these kind of tiki bars, the, the ones that you mentioned. Mm. Um, I did do a bit of like reading into those because they just sound amazing. Um, they were referred to as tiki palaces. And they had like waterfalls and volcanoes and streams and they were really, really over the top, but done well. And they offered like drinks and dinner shows and there are still a few kind of old school ones left. Um, there's one I found in Lauderdale, Florida called the Mai Kai, which is still there, um, which looks pretty good. But perhaps in a work society, maybe we shouldn't go there. <laughs> um but yeah, I just looked into films more than anything because there were so many aspects of it. Um, most re- recent one I could find was Moana. Um, so obviously Dwayne Johnson, um, he is kind of like a, essentially like a living tiki totem character in the film because he's got all his tattoos that celebrate his Polynesian culture. Um, and there's parts of... Um, the Polynesian culture celebrated in a lot of the films that he's in, like Fast and Furious. Like it's quite nice that he's able to like take that with him to films and not do it in a trashy way, do it in a really nice, respectful way. Um but I went right back to like early fifties. Um there's a film called The Blue Gardenia. Don't know if you've seen it. Uh rings a bell. Um it's um it's a film noir. Um and it's not completely like based around Polynesian culture, but there's like a scene in there where they're in a bar and it's done in a really nice, respectful way where that they acknowledge that it's not just, oh, we're in this bar with these drinks and it's always oh, so tiki. Um, one of the characters says, um, these aren't really drinks. They're trade winds across cool lagoons. They're the southern cross above coral reefs. They're a lovely maiden bathing at the foot of a waterfall. So it, try to capture that essence of you know tiki culture being a, a way of life and a, a whole thing that's beyond just like you know these trashy bars and drinks mm-hmm. <laughs> um which i thought was quite nice um and so i delved then into the world of tiki influence in film and i found this amazing uh source of information called geeky tiki which was this wonderful collection of people online who love film who loved the tiki culture, who loved drinks, and it was almost like it was made for this podcast because it was just an abundance of information on tiki influence in films. But they also, um, as they, a lot of them are bartenders and cocktail fairs, they recommended like drinks to pair with the films as well, which is quite nice. So I'm going to speak about some of them. Mm-hmm. Blue Gardenia. The bartender recommended a cocktail that he called Mr. Preble's Downfall presume that's somebody in the film. I've not watched the film. Um, But his drink was five chunks of pineapple, eight mint leaves, fresh lime juice, sugar syrup, apricot liqueur and rum and bitters. Served in a tall tiki glass with more mint to garnish. Sounds delish. Um, Another film then we discussed on the website was Joe vs. the Volcano, which is a very early 90s film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is brilliant really because I haven't actually watched it for a very long time I can't remember it fully but I ju- all I remember is it's Tom Hanks 
he's told that he's like terminally ill and he decides to go and throw himself into a volcano in Polynesia and it's to help the people there for some reason mm-hmm. it's for their benefit I, I can't remember if it's like a sacrifice or, or something but it is yeah yeah so um the the bartender that suggested this drink called it Joe Banks after the the character Joe um and that's a Sailor Jerry's rum almond syrup grenadine orange juice lime and bitters it's to be served I mean, the reason I chose this is purely because of the way he suggested serving it. To be served in your volcano bowl, you know, the one you've got under mm-hmm. the sink. Sure, we've all <laughs> to be got served one. in your volcano bowl with every umbrella you can find. <laughs> I mean, so. I, I've stolen quite a lot of like hefty golf umbrellas from various <laughs> corporates, corporate <laughs> events in my time. I'm not sure it belongs. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to make that. I'm, I might actually order everything I need on eBay just to buy to make that. I used to love Jay, Jay versus the volcano. It was a, yeah. a childhood favourites film. Um, it was actually one I'd forgotten about. It, I was going to say it's a good uh, trivia thing to remember. A good pub quiz trivia thing to remember when you're coming up with Tom Hanks films in the '90s. People always forget about that one. <laughs> Um, another one, Voodoo Island. I put I, I put this one in because I thought it was up your street because it's obviously Boris Karloff horror. Um, it's based in the South Pacific. It's set in Hawaii, and they describe it as it has the feel of Tiki but with zombies. <laughs> so, right. Not not technically a Tiki kind of inspired film, but they are like it's in Hawaii. That's culture cultural appropriation right there, isn't it? It sure is. Hawaii. And also. Film. <laughs> and also <laughs> managing to confuse Haiti with Hawaii uh, in regards to voodoo as well. That's that's under the plus. Oh, did I say Haiti? No, you said Hawaii, but it's is it... it's. What did you say it was called? Voodoo Island. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Vo- set in Hawaii. <laughs> yes, but, and but vo- voodoo, voodoo is... is Haiti. Yeah, yeah, Vi- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You well, know, th- this is it with Tiki. We've proven our own point here. <laughs> yeah. But the drink sounds good. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we've got bourbon, spiced rum. Well, actually, no. Peach liqueur. Don't want any of that. <laughs> bourbon, spiced rum, peach liqueur, <laughs> coconut cream rum, lime juice, honey syrup to be served in a Tiki glass with a sizzle stwi- swizzle stick, parasol, and an orchid. Mm. That yeah, there fancy. are there are a lot of big flowers served in these drinks. I've seen gardenias added to a few. Then the last one that I have a drink pairing for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the the loosest connection to Tiki of them all. Right. They didn't actually justify it at all on the website. I was trying to work out like, but, but, but why? And the only connection I can think of is a Hawaiian shirt. Right. And the film is. The Goonies. I, I don't know why they listed it as um, a film to pair a drink with. Okay. All I can think of is Chunk wears a Hawaiian shirt. Like that. Yeah. I mean, it's I suppose there are Pirates of the Caribbean overtones going on there as well. I guess so. Maybe it's the perfect marriage of Caribbean and Hawaiian. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, they suggested a drink which they'd called the One-Eyed Willie's Grognog, which is white rum, grenadine, demerara rum, orange juice, lime, bitters, and ginger beer. Sounds right up my street. I love mm-hmm. ginger beer. Next, just a bit of information on some lovely films that have a little bit more of a connection to Tiki rather than a Hawaiian shirt. Um, so, Goodfellas, good, Goodfellas, Goodfellas, uh, the Bamboo Lounge in Goodfellas, um, which is like a proper nod to Tiki, the deck, all the drinks, everything. Mm-hmm. That is filmed at um, a bar called Hawaii Kai which is one of the kind of most famous bars in New York that came out of the kind of tiki boom of the 60s. Um, It's closed now, closed in 1989. But I just thought it was quite impressive that um, it essentially like survived the kind of decline. I know there was like the revival back in the 90s, but this, this one kept going like from the 60s right through to the late 80s, which I thought was quite nice. Mm. Um, and then the last film, Blue Hawaii. Um, I quite liked reading into this because not only did it involve Elvis, who was massively in love with Tiki stuff, and he wrote the soundtrack, but it was also one of those films where it opened up the whole culture of surfing and the music that comes with surfing into you know, the world of people that had never seen it before. So I just like to think that that kind of opened a lot of people's eyes to like a whole new culture as well. Um, but I'm sure you said you had a drink that would go well with the film. Oh, well, just that there is a cocktail called Blue Hawaii. Um, ah. it's, it's a famous cocktail and people, I suppose, presume that it was named after the film. It's... Um, because it's a tropical cocktail made of rum, pineapple juice, blue curacao, sweet and sour mix, and uh, sometimes it's got vodka in it as well. And then it'll often be, it's because it's quite a simple one to make, it's often a big punch bowl one, sometimes with blended ice, like you'd have a margarita or something as well. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, it wasn't named after the film. It was named after the song, the title song, which featured in the 1937 film Waikiki Wedding. Uh, that I believe mm-hmm. Bing Crosby was in. And the cocktail was actually made in Waikiki. Uh, it was made at the Hilton Hawaiian Village by a uh, bartender called Harry Yee in 1957, which was four years before the Elvis film. And mm-hmm. he made it because a sales representative from from Bowles, the, the Dutch distiller, had asked him to design a drink that featured their blue curacao liqueur. And that's what he came up with. Yeah, the, the the biggest takeaway I had from the whole research was that you, you can see quite clearly how frustrating it must be for people who recognise the appropriation because it, it's just so tenuous the way people try and link mm. the tiki kind of culture and it, it's, yeah, it's daft. <laughs> well, I think I'd the important thing to remember, I think the important thing to remember is that tiki culture is a US thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's an inter- it's an interpretation of almost anywhere else. It's like tiki culture is not Polynesian, tiki culture is American. Mm-hmm. But also that the revolution that happened with the drinks, with the beverages, is different to what happened with the culture. And I think the drinks are probably still worth celebrating. Alright, should we get on to the drinks then? 
sure. Yes. Uh, I'm going to kick off with a Singapore sling. Ah, yes. I love the Singapore sling. I was lucky enough to uh, kick off my honeymoon in Singapore mm -hmm. and have a Singapore sling at the long bar in the raffles, which is where it was born. Um, so for those who haven't had a Singapore sling, it consists of gin, cherry brandy, control, benedictine, pineapple, lime, grandine and bitter. And it's delish. There was a definite difference to drinking it there compared to a lot of Singapore's things that you order in just, you know, your generic bars and tiki bars. They, yeah. Like you say, it was all the fresh ingredients and it was really tasty. And really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, do you know Singapore slings predate the tiki movement? Mm-hmm. I can't remember the date exactly. So it's yeah. nineteen fifteen that it was created in the Raffles Hotel. Mm. Um, so it is like it is well before all the on the beach coma stuff. But also, you know, they used to just be called a gin sling before they created mm -hmm. a signature gin sling, being the Singapore sling. And yeah. its history often gets confused with um, the bartender John Collins and the drink Tom Collins which we did cover as well in a previous episode a little bit. I think it was about the uh, martinis. I sort of said it has this history where it, it, it gets developed in London and also in New York bars. But here it is also living as another version in, in Singapore. So mm. the, the gin mixed with something gets confused in its histories, but it does seem that Singapore Sling has a, has a separate strand which was about specifically mixing it with cherry brandy as opposed to the lemon juice mixes that went into all mm -hmm. the Collins versions yep. but yeah exactly so that's totally a guilt-free one <laughs> it's, not, it's not tiki at all it has a much longer history the next one i want to tell you about is the suffering bastard <laughs> now the suffering bastard is the name for two different uh, mixed drinks really one is the more standard one that's associated with world war ii and the other is the one that becomes associated with the tiki bars so obviously they're going to be with any cocktail there's lots of different recipes and variations but the bartender joe shalom i think it's pronounced in 1942 he created um this version that called for brandy and gin Whereas uh, Victor Bergeron of Trader Vic created it later uh, with, with rum and made it more in line with that and garnished it with cucumber and other secret ingredients. But the original one from Joe Shalom, it was created in um, an Egyptian hotel, in the Shepherd's Hotel in the 1940s. And similar to a lot of the origin stories we have of, of tiki cocktails, he created it as a hangover drink. So it is for the Allied troops, supposed to be a cure for um, their, their suffering and their complaints about the poor quality of liquor in the area. Um, his, his notes say it calls for brandy, but sometimes bourbon was swapped out for it as well, when brandy wasn't available. So <laughs> the, the um, suffering bastard, in more sensitive 
uh, ears and certain places was translated as suffering bar steward, <laughs> uh, which I quite <laughs> like. But uh, there are other versions of it as well. So if you add in bourbon, it becomes the dying bastard. Um, that's if you swap the bourbon for the brandy. But if you add both bourbon and rum, then it's called a dead bastard. <laughs> <laughs> So um, with with that being made in Egypt as well, we saw that with absinthe where they created specific drinks for the troops in Af in Northern Africa who kind of couldn't cope and needed, you know, cheering up. And so it became hugely popular drink. They were making like big batches and sending them to the front lines. And as ever, when the um, servicemen and troops return home, they take their preference for those drinks back with them. So Tradevic's version is using Barbados rum instead, and they're also using their Mai Tai mix. So you know I said like he, he packages these Mai Tai mixes that can make at home, they use that as a key ingredient for it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that the tiki bars did as well is they were really into having these distinct mugs for different drinks. So they had the Suffering Bastard tiki mug, which was made to look like this... Um, squat man with a hangover holding his um his hands over the top of his head in pain and originally he was known as Mai Tai Joe that character sounds <laughs> <Joe. laughs> good yeah yeah they're still very collectible actually the original tiki mugs they're sort of as valued as any other tiki stuff is all right I've got another one for you mm -hmm. so the two examples we had were kind of predating the tiki movement in a way or you know weren't originators in the bars this one is called the sumatra cooler cooler uh, k-u-l-a and this one was created by don beach called for light rum equal parts orange lime white grapefruit juices and then it was sweetened with some uh, diluted honey uh, it was sometimes called the beach coma as well as the sumatra cooler and that's probably because it was thought to be his first cocktail, like the first one he created at Don the Beach Coma, the Beach Coma. It was named uh, thereafter, part in reference to Sumatra, but also um, that the word Kula, K-U-L-A, is a reference to the Kula Exchange, which is this um, exchanging of social gifts um, uh, that happened. But it people think that it's, cooler c double o l e r as in there are lots of kind of types of drinks that are a cooler but that that means that you've added um sparkling water or something else carbonated to make it cooler which this one didn't have so it's not that it's it's about the exchange and the trade and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. over to you over to me um so I'm going to talk about something that I have actually spoken about before. Mm -hmm. uh, Planter's Punch. Oh, yes. Uh, so I spoke about it because obviously I've drunk it a lot in Barbados. Um, and I think last time I spoke about it, it was in the Mount Gay episode. And I shared a kind of like rhyme that they use over there in order to pour the perfect punch with your rum. Um, so I did a bit more digging into Planter's Punch uh, online and um, I found this really nice recipe. So I found this document on um, online dated from September 1878. Um, and it's from what I can see, it's some kind of like a newspaper magazine 
thing. <laughs> I don't even know what it is because I can't really find much context on it. I can just find the odd page, but it's just, a, let's call it a magazine called Fun. Um, mm -hmm. And they have like letters that have sent in from people. They have poems. They'll have um, sporting notes and anticipations and odds and sods in there. And from, yeah, September 1878, I found um, Planter's Punch, a West Indian recipe. Um, and, oh, well, I'll just read it out. Um, a wine glass with lemon juice fill, of sugar the same glass fill twice. Then rub them together until the mixture looks smooth, soft and nice. Of rum, then three wine glasses add, and four of cold water, please take. A drink then you have that's not bad. At least so they say in Jamaica. <laughs> that's nice. what I found. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like the non non rhyming end. It felt very poetic <laughs> until that. <laughs> um but I, yeah, I just thought that was quite fun. Um and I just had to mention Planters Punch because it's my favourite thing. Mm -hmm. Um uh, so yeah, it's normally a, a dark rum from the Caribbean. Orange juice, pineapple, lemon, grenadine, syrup, bitters. And to me, that's kind of where, if I was ever going to get annoyed with people kind of appropriating things, it's a, a, a decent rum punch. Because I hate it when I order a rum punch and it just tastes like sugar and fruit juice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got a couple more for you. Okay. So I've, I've told you the number one best-selling drink at Trader Vic's, which is the Mai Tai. So I'm going to take you through three and two as well. Okay. Uh, the third best-selling one is the Scorpion Bowl. And mm -hmm. much like you described with the Volcano Bowl, which my understanding is that kind of scorpion bowls come before it, and then when you add um, dry ice and stuff and it sort of smokes, that's, that's the Volcano Bowl. So it's this communally shared tiki drink served in a large ceramic bowl and then it would be traditionally decorated with like hula girl island scenes i say tradition in their tradition you know <laughs> hula girl island scenes and you drink it um, through long straws in the bartender's guide from 1947 that was the first book he published of his recipes he says the scorpion punch is meant for 12 people and the ingredients are um a bottle and a half of Puerto Rican rum, two ounces of gin, two ounces of brandy, a pint of fresh lemon juice, half a pint of fresh orange juice, half a pint of uh, orgeat syrup, half a bottle of white wine, and two sprigs of fresh mint. <laughs> I love that there's just white wine in there. Chuck it in. It's pretty, it's pretty intense. Um, <laughs> And this was inspired by a, a, a scorpion bowl that he'd had in Hawaii, made using uh, Okalehau, which is an Hawaiian alcoholic spirit, whose main ingredient is the is the roots of the tea plant, not mm -hmm. T-E-A-T-I. Um, so it, it's actually made in a very similar way to last time when we were talking about uh, tequila and mezcal. It's that kind of thing. They roast the, the plant and then uh, distill the sap and, and get it from that. So mm -hmm. we had a big drink there. I've had scorpion bowls in the past, like where you do put all the 
spirits and juices in a big bowl with ice and then you tip in it was actually a bottle of prosecco a bottle of prosecco tipped in at the top and uh, you just have straws and share it it's uh it's an experience for let's say it's an experience for pre-pandemic times <laughs> so is that I, i've done if this is something you read into but is it um because when i've been to tiki bars it like the kind of usp is always like these big sharing cocktails i've had like cocktail serves in served in like a treasure chest and things like that mm, is mm-hmm. that kind of is that something that it's evolved into or yes. is that to kind of replicate the whole these are very strong and let's get very drunk <laughs> uh, yeah so it's it, it's definitely inspired by communal punch bowls like like the head in Hawaii, like the scorpion bowls for sure mm-hmm. i mean actually communal drinking through straws of large bowls is much older than that mm-hmm. but we'll come on to that in another episode when i get to the talk about mesopotamia but yeah, certainly I, those, those kind of like modern versions where instead of a bowl, it's like a big ship or a treasure chest or whatever is, is inspired by that. <laughs> There's an official record, apparently, for how fast someone consumed uh, a scorpion bowl at, at Trader Vic's. His name is <laughs> Joseph Marshall. His profession was a college student. <laughs> no one's surprised. Cool. Back, in t- back in 2001. And uh, do you want to guess how long it, it, it took? Remind me again how like how much liquid is it? It's one and a half bottles of rum, two ounces of gin, two ounces of brandy, a pint of fresh lemon juice, half a pint of fresh orange juice, half a pint of orge uh, syrup, half a bottle of white wine, and two, crucially, two sprigs of fresh mint. I'm gonna say like a minute. Eleven seconds. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> it's not okay. It, it's not okay, is it? I wonder if it wasn't the original recipe. If they gave him something much softer, because I think you'd die from that. Anyway, that's the Scorpion Bowl. So that's the number three bestseller. The number two bestseller is called the Fog Cutter. Uh, and I don't know too much to say about this, other than it's served in a ceramic mug and it's limited to two per people. So I'll just tell you what's in it. It's two ounces of light Puerto Rican rum, an ounce of brandy, half an ounce of gin, half an ounce of cream sherry, which is done as a as a floater. So they, they put it on top like a, a floating head. Two ounces of lemon juice, an ounce of orange juice, and half an ounce of orgeat syrup. So yeah, still pretty boozy. Mm-hmm. All the best sellers are basically very alcoholic <laughs> of course and usually limited limited to a two <laughs> person all right I've, t- I've told you i mean there are so many cocktails we could go on about but i think i've, I've told you sort of the most important ones from me you got any <laughs> any last ones to uh tell me about? i've got one more um it's called the painkiller mm-hmm. so again another rum cocktail um and it was actually trademarked by uh, Fusser's Rum, which is a navy rum. Uh, it's their signature drink. Um, and it was made, originally the cocktail, Painkiller, it was created in the 70s at the Soggy Dollar Bar at White Bay in the British Virgin Islands. Um, now, originally it contained rum from Barbados, um, 
and in somewhere else I can't remember but it was it, it was two blends of Caribbean rum first um but it quickly got switched out and trademarked by us's rum Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is um, a blend of the rum with four parts pineapple juice, one part cream of coconut, one part orange juice, well shaken, and then the crucial thing is a generous amount of fresh nutmeg on top. Because oh, I cannot tell you how good nutmeg and rum is. It's just my favourite thing. So um, I wanted to include that because it sounds like my ideal drink. I might make that soon it's quite interesting i found uh, i did a bit more research into it just to see how it kind of evolved because mm-hmm. um obviously like so this rum pusses rum was um a navy rum but they continued making it well beyond the ending of the rations um and it uses a blend of five different rums from the west indies um but I was just looking for like different recipes and you know what kind of rums they use. And generally, it just says yeah, just a dark Caribbean rum or a navy rum. Um, but the only recipes, different recipes I could find, <laughs> was just variations of how strong it is. So I found a dedicated like list of recipes, and it was like here are four recipes for a painkiller cocktail, and the only difference between them was how much rum you put in so recipe one recipe one was four parts rum and everything else recipe two was three parts rum and everything else recipe three was two parts rum everything else recipe four don't bother (laughs) yeah well that that sounds like the difference between 1940s and 50s recipes to 1980s recipes they just got Mm -hmm. weaker and weaker and more synthetic and more synthetic do you remember why it's called uh, Pusser's Rum? Uh, it's it's one of the names of one of the guys on the ship, right? I can't remember. We, Purser? Yeah, we, yeah, the Purser, that's it. We, yeah. did, we did this in our, um, our sea shanty nautical episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's the Purser who apportioned the rations of rum to yeah, yeah. Uh, the sailors in the Navy. Yeah. I... It's funny, isn't it, going through this episode, how many things we've sort of talked about a bit or have come up in other episodes. I think that's why it's worth kind of looking at as uh, beyond just kind of like, oh, that's offensive culture now. Because Mm -hmm. how revolutionary it was for cocktails and for drinking and how because... Because it is this weird appropriation of so many different cultures, you see it popping up again in lots of uh, drink stories and histories. So mm-hmm. it's it's something that we shouldn't just disregard. We should understand. I think. All right. Have we have we done it? Have we done all of Oceania? I think we have, and it sounds like Milo is over it as well. I yeah, you can hear him. I can start it up. Yep. <laughs> I can hear his commentary. Thank you very much. And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to switch to a scorpion bowl before fully embracing the true meaning of suffering pasture. Cheers, everybody! This is the first episode I've not finished my drink by the end. You can tell I've been drinking since... God knows what time. <laughs> <laughs> I finished my fruit juice and went on to a beer. <laughs> That's sneaky. I didn't hear you open it. 
It was already open. It was already prepared. I knew. <laughs> I knew what was going to happen. <laughs> if you'd like some snoring, just in case you want to edit it in. No, he's woken up. 